All right. Good morning again. Let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing as we go into his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you again this morning for this wonderful time that you've granted us to hear one more time about Christ, one more time about what he has done in the salvation of his people, accomplishing salvation for them, granting them eternal life on account of his faithfulness, on account of his obedience. And that's the testament of the Holy Spirit. And now I seek the same spirit that he may teach me, teach his people, grant us ears to hear. We honor you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Today we actually are going to be in John chapter 3. We did a message a couple of weeks ago on the new birth. And today is a continuation of that message. I was hoping to be in Exodus chapter 3 today, but that's not what the Lord meant to happen. So we are going to be where he wants us to be. And I'm sure we are going to be back in Exodus next Sunday and keep working our gospel understanding from that. We are a gospel preaching and teaching church. And we love to teach from the scriptures. We love to expound the text verse by verse because the details of our faith are given in the text. So the more we interrogate the text, the more we are assured of what God is saying about himself, about his Christ, and about ourselves. And so we're going to be in John chapter 3, beginning at verse 11. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 11, all the way to verse 21. And this is from the New King James. And John wrote and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, and these are the words of Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Were evil. For everyone practicing evil has the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light 
that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And those are the words of the Lord Jesus by his spirit. We have one title to this message. It's John 3, 16 and the gospel. John 3, 16 and the gospel. But before we get to that, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> we have a lot of background to do and develop for our understanding. And we'll begin this way. The gospel is founded on God and his truth. It communicates to us sinners the truth as God defines it because God alone is the source and cause of all that is true and faithful. God alone is the cause of reason and logic. In and through the gospel, God introduces himself to his creation. He introduces himself to us. He makes himself known through Christ. That's how God has determined to be known to us. So the matter of the gospel is more than just our justification, but the knowing of God and the glorification of the Son as the Son glorifies the Father. As Jesus prayed and said in John 17, verse 3, he was praising the Father for having given him the right to give eternal life to as many as were given him. But then he also said, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the definition of eternal life as far as Jesus is concerned. To know the true God and to know Christ. So your justification and mine is not the end of Christ, but only the means to the end. The end is knowing God. As he has glorified himself through the Son. As the Son has glorified God through the salvation of his people. In other words, we are very safe every time we talk about the Son and make it all about the Son. Your ticket to the Super Bowl is not the Super Bowl. It is the means to behold it. It is the means to be able to watch it in the stadium. So our justification is not the end, but is our God-given ticket to behold the glory of the Son, the glory that he had with the Father from before the foundation of the world. So Christ is the end. Christ is the end of everything. Is the end of the Lord, the end of all of God's creation, the Alpha and the Omega which means he brackets all things, everything is in him. That's the gospel. Though it is a spiritual reality, the gospel is a spiritual reality because it respects the person of God. It does not come to us 
apart from reason. In other words, it has to make sense. Faith is not the opposite of rational thinking. Rather, faith, biblical faith, gospel faith, is based on truth. And reason, as Paul said to Festus in Acts 26, 24 and 25, Paul is making a defense of himself before Festus. And Luke recorded and said, as Paul was saying these things in his defense about the Christ and his resurrection and salvation, Festus exclaimed loudly and said, Paul, you have lost your mind. Paul, you're crazy. Your great learning is driving you insane. (laughs) Paul was known to be someone who was highly educated. But Paul replied, I have not lost my mind. Most excellent festers, but I am speaking true and rational words. Faith is based on rational words, rational propositions, propositions that have been made by God about all things, about himself, specifically the matter of Christ and what he has done and what that should mean. And these propositions that God has made cannot be appraised or received in agreement to them, which is the matter of confession. Because to confess is to agree with what someone has said. It does not mean to go and spill the beans about your life. It means to be in agreement with So the matter of this truth, these propositions cannot be received unless God does something to cause a person to see them, to see them spiritually, not physically. Thus faith respects the seeing of the unseen. It respects the seeing of the unseen because true reality and its substance is found in the God who is unseen. The unseen is God who causes all things to be visible. The invisible precedes the visible. The spiritual precedes the physical. So all reality is actually not in the physical, but in the spiritual. And in the book of John, God is introducing himself to us in the person of Christ. Through the incarnation, the incarnation means God adding human nature or flesh to himself, clothing himself with human nature but without sin. So we see Christ introduced to us, the unseen God tabernacling in the flesh. That's John 1 verse 14. Revealed in the context of our salvation and telling us of our real need, of our real problem and the solution to it. And John the Baptist comes and says, Behold the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. Behold him, see him. And this word came to a world that he created and sustains by his power. The light and life of men. But a world that is fallen, a world that has been darkened by sin, even though they are not aware of it. They think sin and death are natural to the world. They don't know that it is a matter of God's judgment. And the evidence that the world is darkened by sin is that it failed to recognize its creator when he showed up. Like a child who refuses or fails to recognize their mother who gave birth to them. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But there were some who received him. It was those who were born of God. They were born spiritually of God. They were given a spiritual birth that equipped them with the antennas to receive spiritual truth. But the darkness of the world came to be presented to us in the person of Nicodemus. The Nicodemus who had the best of what the fallen world could give. Nicodemus with a wonderful resume, a very polite man, a very powerful and influential man, very religious, a teacher of the synagogue, a professor of theology. Because Jesus said, you are a teacher in Israel. He's a professor of theology. But who did not know the fundamentals of true religion? Nicodemus, with all his resume, did not know the fundamentals of true religion. And Jesus says to him, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And by this, Nicodemus is shocked. And Jesus rebukes him and says in John 3.10, Are you the teacher? Are you a teacher of Israel? And do not know these things. You do not know these ABCs. Unfortunately, that's how things are. There are many teachers who profess to speak for God who do not know these matters, that there is no formula that can be recited by a sinner in darkness or steps to be followed for one to be born of God. They deny the sovereignty of God in this matter, wanting to give the power of determination, the power of giving eyesight to other dead people and wrestle that power away from God. And many in our day and time say we must downplay the knowledge of the truth in the name of grace. But Jesus does not think so. Jesus said the truth shall set you free. This Truth still matters 
because grace and truth came by Christ. Grace is not there to remove the offense, but to put the offense. So this matter of the new birth, regeneration, is of God's sovereign will and purpose to cause or to do only two. And in as many as has been given to Christ, and as many as Christ died to save, all those that Christ died to save are going to be born again, and they want to believe the truth. A man, woman, child must be born again to enter. They must be made anew, spiritually anew, and that by the work of God. This is not something that is within our hands or thought level to do or to conceive. We don't understand the necessity of it. It is beyond our level of perception. And that reveals the depth of our depravity to the matter. And Nicodemus, as a very polite and religious person, was just as depraved as the Samaritan woman with her many husbands and a living boyfriend, the testimony of Jesus. They lived on the extreme ends of depravity. Nicodemus, the shore of depravity, came by way of false religion that was marked by zeal without the knowledge of God's righteousness. Nicodemus did not know about God's righteousness, even though he was under the law. And the Samaritan woman representing the depravity of the Gentiles, on the other hand, who were without law, seeking satisfaction through her own flesh, but not finding it. The Samaritan woman is seeking satisfaction through her own flesh. Five husbands, a living boyfriend, still no satisfaction. She needs another husband. She needs a seventh husband. The perfect one, Christ, has come. That's what she's seeking. Nicodemus, in his being lost under the law, still needs Christ. Nicodemus did not come to Christ of his own accord. God drew him to Christ because Nicodemus was elect. So Jesus comes with this teaching of the new birth and says this is a must. It must happen if one is to be saved and yet like the wind, it cannot be controlled by anyone. It cannot be caused by anyone who is not God himself. The wind blows where it listens, where it wills. You can't control it. You can't command it. So the matter of the new birth cannot be commanded by me or anyone. But the new birth is necessary. The new birth is necessary not because it creates merit, not because it gives you ability to be righteous in yourself, but because God gives it to all 
who should come to him. The new birth is necessary because by it God gives the knowledge of the truth, of the true way of salvation. The new birth is God's spiritual prescription for the elect. God says, oh, you are blind. (laughs) Here is the prescription that you need to be able to see and come to Christ. That's the conversation that Jesus has with the Jews. Even in John 9, of the man born blind. He says to the Jews, well, because you say you see, therefore your sin still remains because you are claiming that you see. If you were blind, I would have given you the prescription that will cause you to see the truth of salvation. So the evidence of the new birth is in that one sees Christ for who he is, and in the process, they also see themselves in the true light as a hopeless sinner, as a darkness dweller. And that is why we do not try to build people up according to their works. It gives them false hope and false confidence, false sense of security, when the real security is found outside of them, outside of anything that they are doing in looking to the crucified and risen Christ. So regeneration causes a looking to Christ for salvation and never to the sinner. So again, regeneration, the new birth is not the beginning of righteousness. It is not giving you ability to start working your own righteousness, but an awakening to see Christ the invisible one, the righteous one, and what he has done and forming or causing faith and repentance around the person of Christ. Faith and repentance have to be about and around and looking to the person of Christ. That's the matter of faith and repentance. So the Lord did not entertain Nicodemus a self-assessment of him, even though Nicodemus was elect. It is not that Jesus hated Nicodemus. He never hated his elect people. But he was just shocking him out of his religious falsehood and false sense of security and showing him that he could not have any hope of salvation apart from God's grace and could not make a proper assessment of Jesus apart from God's revelation of him. Which matter Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 24 to 27. This is a very popular verse that we like to speak to. Matthew eleven twenty four to 27. Matthew says, At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things 
from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, for this was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son decides to reveal him. The Son decides, wills to reveal the Father, reveal himself to anyone that he likes. Jesus is praising God the Father for hiding the truth from people. You've never heard of that Jesus in many churches. Father, I thank you. I praise you for hiding these wonderful things from people and revealing them to just some. Nicodemus did not know that when he came to Jesus. Nicodemus did not have Matthew 11. I want to point something to you again in the conversation of Jesus and Nicodemus. You see that when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, the conversation quickly descended into being a monologue. If you have the red letter edition, you see that it's mostly red. And then Nicodemus did not say a whole lot. He just came and said, well, we know you are a good teacher come from God. For no man can do all these wonderful things that he do unless God was with him. That is something that, to thank Nicodemus for and say, your mother taught you well. No, Jesus is not impressed. But with the Samaritan woman, it was a dialogue. It's not red. It's, if you go and check that, it's red, black, red, black, red, black. There's a more, a, 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 what do you call that? Dialogue. There's a dialogue. With this sinner, this Samaritan woman, Jesus is causing. He is in a dating mood. But Jesus wanted to drive home this matter of salvation to Nicodemus and all who may think they can know God and salvation from the exercise of their own natural senses, their choice and will, as we find in much of testimony. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, verse 11, most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. Nicodemus is in awe and shock at the teaching. And Jesus says, I am not speaking, I'm not making things up, Nicodemus. This is the truth. You came and said, you, you and your guys know something that I'm a teacher from God. But yes and no, you do not know what you think you know. This is above your pay grade. <laughs> to make an assessment of me is above your pay grade. I am the one who knows what is actually going on. I speak of what I know and testify of what I have seen, which things, Nicodemus, you have seen none. So I have both the knowledge and the witness and the testimony, and you do not receive our witness, the witness of the Father, the witness of the Spirit, and my own witness. 
my own witness. Nicodemus, you cannot receive the witness of Christ because God has not yet given you the ability to do so. As I said, this ability is not natural to men and women. It is a God-given ability. Verse 12 of John 3. Jesus says, If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus says, This class, though lofty to you, was actually discussion on earthly things. Things that happen here and you do not believe and you do not understand. And Jesus arguing here from the lesser to the greater, the lesser earthly things. Now he goes to the greater. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? If I tell you about the deep spiritual matters of the mind of God, his works, his power. His providence, his silent operations. Will you get it? If you're missing this kindergarten understanding of the new birth, who causes it? And if necessity, then you cannot have a proper conversation with me. But for the heavenly things of which Nicodemus, you alluded to about my person, and gave yourself some ability to interpret. For me, let me tell you the truth. Verse 18. <laughs> no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. Nicodemus, tell me if you understand that. No one has ascended to heaven to enter into this spiritual place where God rules and resides, but I do come from there. I came down from there. I came from heaven. That is my living room. So my opinion really matters. I am not talking about things that I heard from other people like you do. I am the bringer of the true knowledge of heaven. I am the son of man who is in heaven. Nicodemus, can you understand that? The son of man who descended from heaven and yet is also in heaven. <laughs> and that to say, is omnipresent. Jesus is saying he is God. He doesn't have to tell you that he is God, but he is telling us such ability is only found in one who is God. He is on earth and at the same time he is in heaven. Heaven did not become vacant when Jesus came down. That's what Jesus is saying. There was no vacant sign. Is that a conversation that you have ability to understand Nicodemus? And Jesus continued and said, verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So Jesus introduces himself 
with his favorite title or designation, the Son of Man. And that invoking the Son of Man vision from the book of Daniel. Daniel 7. Let's go to Daniel chapter 7, 11 to 14. This is the vision that Daniel had in Daniel 7, 11 to 14. Daniel says, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. That's the only kingdom that shall stand. And Jesus says, the son of man to Nicodemus to say, Nicodemus, if you understood the scriptures, you are now speaking to him who rules forever. <laughs> As was spoken by the prophet Daniel. And it's all about me. But this is how this is going to work. I will show you from the Old Testament scriptures of which you are a teacher, but ignorant of. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The matter of Christ's revelation is going to happen in the context of salvation. Just as Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness, this location called the wilderness, even so, in the same way, in the same manner, must the Son of Man be lifted up. But why must the Son of Man be lifted up? So that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The Son of Man is the difference maker between perishing or living. So how does everlasting life come? It comes, number one, by way of the Son of Man. There's no other way. Only by the Son of Man. Number two, he must be lifted up in a particular way. He has to be lifted up in a particular way. In a manner in which Moses had raised the bronze serpent in the wilderness. And what happened in the wilderness? So that we understand what Jesus is saying. And for that, let's go to Numbers 21. 
and we'll pack in there for a minute. Numbers 21, verse 4 to 9. This is Israel in the wilderness with Moses. And Israel is doing what Israel is able to do. Complain. The text says, Then they journeyed from Mount Hall by way of the Sea to go around the land of Edom, that's the land of Esau. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. So the souls, the spirits of the people got impatient and highly irritable. Sounds like sinners to me. And when that happens, people have something to say And in this case, they were not happy with God and Moses. When push comes to shove, we direct our displeasures of life to God, to blame him. And the people, verse 5, and the people spoke against Moses. They spoke against God and against Moses. They were not enjoying this desert vacation. These two are through the desert. And so they laid out their charge against God and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water and our soul lords this worthless bread. We hate this useless bread. We are speaking to God. We hate it. You took us from Egypt where we had food. We had running water. We had cucumbers, garlic, watermelons, all kinds of spices, T-bone steak. Drive through. And you have brought us out so that we may die miserably in this desert with no food or water. And by the way, whilst we are at this We just wanted to tell you that we hate this miserable bread, this worthless bread. And that was in reference to the manna that God used to rain on them every day, save for Saturday. We hate this manna. We have cooked it with oil. We have grilled it. We have put cheese on it. Please pass us through a Burger King or McDonald's or something, but we can't keep having this. We're tired of it. <laughs> what are they saying? They're saying we've come to Christ. We've introduced Christ to us, and yet things have not gotten better for us. Because the manna is a picture of Christ. We have come to Christ and this Christ is no good. Because I am still not married. I came to Christ still not married. I came to Christ, I'm still poor. I came to Christ, my life still sucks. I don't have as many friends. God, where is the cheese? I thought the gospel is supposed to make my life better. 
It seems my life was better when I was hustling in Egypt. When I used to go and kick it, I had a lot of friends. But let us hear if God was impressed by their testimony and groanings. Verse 6. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they beat the people, and many of the people of Israel died just for complaining to God to change the diet. Lord have mercy. This is how God responded to their prayer for him to change their diet. They wanted a diet change. A soda fountain in the desert. <laughs> but this is what God sent them. Fiery serpents. To buy the people. And many died. Fiery serpents with venom that banned Ichi and yet also killed. God did this, not the devil. It's God who killed them. And it is God who sent the fiery serpents. So what did the people do? Verse 7, therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. The people could not go directly to God. This they understood. They understood the matter of the need of a mediator between them and the holy and righteous God. Even Moses here as the appointed mediator for them whom they have been speaking ill of. Moses here is a type of Christ. Also, he represents largely the testimony of the law. Even the Christ whom we have spoken ill of and still do in many ways. But he alone is the mediator between God and us sinful men and women. And we have no other option. But to go to him, if we should leave, the fiery serpents are forcing them to go to the mediator. That's the purpose of sin. It's forcing you to go to Christ. That you may have life in him. And no one comes to God apart from Christ's mediation and intercession that is wholly based on his merits, based on his doing. But the children of Israel come with their tails between their legs and said, we have sinned. What we? We have sinned against God and against you, Moses. We have spoken against the law. Now we desperately need your help. Please, can you pray? Pray to the Lord on our behalf. Intercede for us that he take away the serpents from us. Please tell God to remove sin from us. This sin is constantly backing me and causing me to be a bad Christian. I really want to be a good Christian. Yeah. Men of God, pray for me. I've got this sin. I want it to go away. God says, no, it's not going to go away. It's the fire serpent. To keep you looking to his solution. Pray to God that he removes this. Make me a better person. The better me. 
So Moses prayed for the people. Moses, the mediator, prayed for the people and the Lord heard him. But he did not answer the way that the people wanted. As I said, Moses is a type of Christ, also a representative of the law. And God is saying, he only hears the pleas of his appointed mediator. So forget the mediation of Mary, the mediation of the Pope, the mediation of dead saints, or anyone who is not Christ himself. There's not anybody who mediates for another sinner, for a sinner, but Christ Jesus. Christ alone, God's appointed mediator, is the one that God listens to. Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, make a bronze serpent, and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. God said to Moses, You make a bronze serpent, and make one in the likeness of what was biting the people. You, Moses, make it and then raise it and put it on a pole and that whenever or whoever person who is beaten, when he or she looks at it, shall live and not die. They need to just look at the raised bronze serpent and I'll tell you, in that wilderness, there were some people who needed glasses, whose eyes were bad, who lived by just looking in the direction of the raised bronze serpent. In other words, they're looking to the raised serpent was the antidote to the venom that was now flowing in their veins. That was the antidote. What do we glean? We see that the antidote to the venom was found in that which was made in the likeness of what was killing the people, but was without venom itself, because the bronze serpent did not have venom. And that is to say, the bronze serpent was a type of Christ who was made in our likeness and yet was without sin. We see that the power to heal came through that which was lifeless. That which was lifeless and that means the antidote to our sin is the crucified Christ and nothing else. It has to be the crucified Christ. If Christ does not die, then there's no salvation from the venom of the fiery serpents, and that means sin. Christ has to die because that's the only way to deal with sin. So what has God done? The people wanted him to change the gospel menu of the man. I need you to follow my argument. The people had gotten tired of eating manna every day. God's provision 
every day. Hearing about Jesus every day. They wanted a different sermon that talked about being good parents, good wives and husbands, homemakers and stuff like that. Those are the kinds of messages that people want. They don't want to hear about Jesus. No, they don't. They want to hear something useful that they can take from Jesus and use to change their own life and tame the demons of their life. But they're not interested in Jesus. So they say, God, change your sermon. It has too much Jesus in it. Every day we have to eat the same Jesus. But God says, no, I'm not changing the menu. I am going to take you back to the same Christ through the testimony of the bronze serpent. I will change the title of the message, but it still talks about Jesus. From the manner who got the bronze serpent. <laughs> Beloved, don't ever think that God is going to change the menu of the gospel for you and I. And give us the one that is a lot of church activities. I see on church websites, they say, oh, we have a lot of activities at our church ministry for the kids and stuff like that. That's not the gospel. He wants his people to behold Christ, who was mad and raised by Moses, because Christ was raised under the law, and so he has to be put on the cross because of the law, and by the law, pay attention to that. That is the relationship between Moses, the law, and Christ. Moses was there to be the means by which Christ would be raised or put on the cross. In other words, condemned by the law. Moses was raised so that he may raise Christ on the cross in condemnation. And once Moses is done with that, Moses is done. Christ, the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In the wilderness, no, uh, we mind. Let's go to verse 9. Let's go back to verse 9. I think that's the last verse from Numbers 21. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And the looking is speaking to the sufficiency of faith alone in salvation. Looking to the raised Christ. Faith alone is enough. People talk about the fruits of repentance, fruits of salvation, and they begin to do some fruit inspection. Trying to see if you have a lot of fruit for Jesus. <laughs> Faith alone is enough because Christ is enough. Men will come and say, oh, that's too simple. That's too easy. Show us more. Yeah? They underestimate the significance of faith because they don't 
understand the gospel. They don't understand what Christ has done. They don't understand what God means by faith. Faith is God saying, my Jesus is enough for you. That's faith. That's the truth, fruit of repentance. To say Christ is enough for me. It's that simple. But in the wilderness, there are fiery serpents that have been set loose by God to bite you and me, to drive us to Christ. God can turn anything into a fiery serpent. He does. And when they bite, the solution is the same. Look to Christ. Look to the raised bronze serpent. You're going to be beaten. Many times, between now and glory, a lot of things are going to happen. Bad things are going to happen. Fire serpents from the hands of God. They are not from the devil. Even if the devil is used, he's only doing God's bidding. But God has a purpose with it. You are being beaten so that you keep looking to Christ. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, The Son of Man shall be lifted up on the cross of Calvary by the same way that the bronze serpent was raised in the wilderness. Verse 15, going back to John 3. The Son of Man shall be lifted up so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The one who believes should not and will not perish but have eternal life because sin causes a sinner to perish and the solution is Christ and his cross not doing this and that and not trying to wash yourself before God so having shown you the argument from the lesser story of Israel in the wilderness to build background of your understanding, we now go to the greater. We now go to the fulfillment of the type. Moses and the bronze serpent were just shadows. They were just pictures. Now we go to the fulfillment that comes by way of the sun. And Jesus says to Nicodemus and also to us, this is what I am saying, verse 16. For this is the way this is how the New English translation rendered that verse, which I think removes a lot of confusion. For this is the way God loved the world. How did he do that? He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And I'll read the New King James again on that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So in this manner of God, providing a solution to a hopeless people, to a hopeless situation in the wilderness, God has by the son provided not a temporary salvation has happened in the desert, but a salvation unto eternal life. That's the contrast. Now, the Son of Man 
did not come to save only Israel in the wilderness as what had happened with Moses. But his work now expands the boundaries of that salvation to beyond the borders of national Israel. Because the wilderness experience, the bronze serpent, even the water from the rock, that was the experience of national Israel. But now that the sun has come, he expands that to other nations. Because the wilderness experience is not limited to just national Israel, but to all humanity. All humanity is in the wilderness because of sin. It goes to the whole world because the world is in darkness. But we can't stop here. Because the free will people will then latch onto this and deny the doctrines of salvation that Jesus expounded to qualify his teaching. They'll say, see, Jesus said, God loved the whole world without exception. Therefore, if one is not saved, it can only be because they decided by their own will and power to not want to be saved. They're just too stubborn. But I am not. (laughs) But that is really some serious denial of the truth of the new birth, which Jesus said was not in the hands of men to do, with the obvious implication that God only causes it to some who are in the world, but not to all. So the whoever in John 3, 15 and 16 is not speaking to human free will, nor is it saying that all people were born with the ability to come to Christ, or that God really wants to save every person who ever lived. That's not what John 3, 16 is saying. The whoever, the Greek understanding is, they're believing. The ones who do the act of believing. These are the whoever. The word, the Greek word there is pass, P-A-S. It means all, but with qualifiers. All of a particular set. All of a particular set. So this is not speaking to everyone. So let's hear the same Bible tell us about the matter of all. In John 12, 19, the Pharisees said of Christ, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world has gone after Jesus. Did the whole world go after Christ? The Pharisees did not go after Christ. (laughs) So the all there could not have been referring to everybody. In Mark 1, verse 5, we are told, Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Was all Judea or all Jerusalem baptized in Jordan? No, they were not. 
So the whoever are those who are doing the believing, the believing of the truth, the believing of the person of Christ and his claims, who are doing the looking as in the desert. Because in the desert, we were told that many died. Many died because they're not looking. Only those who looked are they who are the believing. But by the teaching of Jesus, who are they who believe? Did Jesus qualify this somewhere? Did he expand his teaching? Because we have to hear what Jesus means by this for us to formulate the proper understanding. Let's go to John 10. John 10. Twenty-four to twenty-eight. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe. Why, Jesus? But you do not believe. Let's hear Jesus' understanding of why they do not believe. Because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. So what do your sheep do? My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. My sheep They know my voice. When they hear the gospel, they know it. And this is what I do for my sheep. Verse 29. I give them eternal life. The sheep have eternal life. He gives them. Not based on anything that they do. He gives them. And they shall never perish. Never, ever perish. The sheep shall never perish Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. What does that say? Anyone who knows the truth and understands what Jesus is saying should not be overly consumed with all this COVID stuff. Because it's unbelief. Jesus says, My ship, I will lose not one. I will give them eternal life. No one can snatch them. They will never perish. That's some serious promise. So nothing happens to us. Take it easy. Be addressed and be happy. Nothing happens to us. Jesus has this. So those who believe are the sheep. You do not believe to become sheep. You believe because you are sheep. And the sheep are they who are born of God and are given the title of children. Okay? So believing. Faith proves one's election. Faith, when you believe, it proves that you are elect. But faith is not the basis of election. Grace is. Faith evidences. But does not cause election and if it is of grace then it means it's God who did it (laughs) 
It is God who makes men to differ. And the level of unreasonableness among the Armenians sometimes is very staggering to me. It's very painful to hear. It is like they throw away every ability to read and comprehend things that are very simple. But then it proves Jesus' doctrine. That unless one is born of God, they will not see, they will not hear these simple truths. Let's hear from Jesus again, John 6. Let's go to John 6. John 6, 36 to 40. Jesus says, But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Don't think you're going to believe in Jesus by seeing him. <laughs> it's been done before. Israel saw God as it were in their midst, in the wilderness. Still unbelievers. Jesus came to Palestine. The Jews saw him still unbelievers. I said to you, you have seen me and yet you do not believe. But hear this, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. They will believe in me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Why? Because they came, because the Father sent them to Christ. When Jesus sees someone coming to him, he knows they are coming from the Father. That's the implication. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all he has given me. I should lose nothing. But should raise it up at the last day. Of all that were given Christ. You lose not one. Not to anything. That's the will of the father. And this very morning. Some preacher somewhere. Is telling people. That they're going to lose salvation. It's madness. Unless one is given by the Father, they will not come to Christ. That's the simple answer to that. Unless one hears and is taught of the Father, they will not come to Christ. Unless one is drawn by the Father to the Son, they will not come to Christ. It's not about their will. It's about the Father. If the Father draws you, you are coming. Oh, you are coming. He will send the fire serpents. <laughs> they will chase you to Christ. Verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I'll raise him up in the last, last day. That's the promise of the resurrection. And that to say, the everyone and the whoever who come to Christ, who come to the Son by faith, are the elect they are born of God, but they do come from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That is the boundaries of the world. It's election from every tribe, from every tongue, people, and nation. So you find Christ church in America, you find it in Asia, in Latin America, in Africa. That's 
what John is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. He has his elect scattered on the face of the earth. But let's keep killing this horse. <laughs> or donkey, even better. Let's kill the donkey. A horse is a beautiful animal to kill. Let's kill a donkey. Because the donkey is too stubborn. Let's go to John 17 again. And let us hear Jesus praying about the world and making distinctions around the matter. John 17, starting from verse 6. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the man whom you have given me out of the world. Jesus prayed for the man who had given him out of the world. That is, the man who were picked out from other people in the world. He said, they were yours. You gave them to me. When did they belong to God? They were yours. And you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me and they have received them. Do you see what you receive as testimony of salvation? The words of Christ. You receive those words. And have known surely that I came forth from you and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the word. I'm like, okay, Jesus, you're confusing us. Change your sermon. Get some word document, whatever thing, app, and correct your teaching. You just said, God so loved the word. And now you're telling us, I do not pray for the word. You're confusing us. But what is Jesus doing? He is qualifying He's teaching. I do not pray for the word, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So Jesus narrows the target group. He defines by way of restriction through his prayer to only those that were given him by the Father who were in the world. That is election within those that are in and are from the world it's not everyone who is in Columbus here who believes the truth. You can try it. Go to the Super Bowl, go to Ohio State playing Michigan and say, let me tell you about Jesus. Let's see how many people are going to eat. They're going to throw their bare cans at you. <laughs> so we can't deny what Jesus is saying. He says, oh, and oh, Mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. Let's keep doing this. We're almost done. Still in John 17. John 17, verse 14. Jesus says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The sheep are not of the world because they are in union 
with the one who is not of the world. John 15, 18 to 19. Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. The world would love you. The world would love your testimony of Christ. So Jesus is telling us that this world is something different. It has to be understood correctly. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates you, not because you have money or anything, but because spiritually they smell something different about the testimony of Christ that God has given you. You don't even have to open your mouth. (laughs) only the elect are they who are not of the world because of their union with Christ their election in Christ their redemption in Christ but everyone else is of the world not just by reason of zip code or postal address but because of their spiritual state their dead in trespasses and sins that's what makes them of the world dead in trespasses sins and they have not been redeemed of Christ. And let us finish this way. What is all that saying? It is saying John 3.16 is not a free will verse. John 3.16 is not saying God so loved everyone in the world that he posted everyone's pictures in his kitchen fridge in heaven. No. It is saying in this manner of the story of Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness, Christ has also been given and has appeared by way of fulfillment of the type or the shadow in Numbers 21. To do the very same thing, even at a higher level, for his elect who are in the world, given him by the Father from before the foundation of the world. The Greek word that is translated as saw, I don't know if I'll pronounce it correctly, is huto, H-O-U-T-O, and it means in this way. It is not amplifying the love to everyone in the world, but is showing us the manner, in this manner, of God's love, in this way. So God shows his love in providing salvation to his elect through the work of his son. And there's no better love that God could give a sinner than to show them the way of salvation, the way of life and righteousness. Because the whole world is under deception. They don't know this matters. They don't believe this matter. And the term world, like any other word, used anywhere in and outside of the Bible is defined by its context. The context 
the context, the context is king in all manner of proper reading and faithful interpretation. And Jesus, by his own words and theology, has demonstrated that he did not mean a universalist, free will type gospel, but a particular gospel. The word of those who are his elect, for whom he was given to redeem. And thank God that he actually finished the work of redemption. Jesus is the one who restricted the boundaries, not me. The free will, universalist interpretation is not true. And is inconsistent with all the teaching of salvation everywhere else in the Bible. It is all about the glory of man in choosing Jesus. It's man saying, no, you can't tell me that God chooses my destiny, determines my destiny. My destiny is in my own hands. I can choose Jesus today and I can decide to just let him go. I had someone tell that to me. It is about trying to make God fair to standards set for him by his own creation. We can't set standards for God. We are removing the offense of the gospel. It is a denial of who he is, his sovereignty in salvation and in election. But that's not the God of the Bible. Paul says this on God's election and purpose in salvation. In Romans 9, 18, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills. He has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. He does those things. And therefore, it is not of him who runs, or the one who wills, but of God who shows mercy. So all the elect will come. The Father will see to it. Christ will see to it. He already made the payment. If he pays, he's going to get what he paid for. No one is going for Black Friday and paying and not getting what they paid for. And somehow we want Jesus to go on Black Friday and come back with nothing. Pay everything, buy TVs and everything, and yet nothing is delivered. It's not going to work. Someone is going to raise hell somewhere. And Jesus, because he paid, is not going to lose you. He's not going to lose you to foolishness. He's not going to lose you to sin. He's not going to lose you to the devil. None of those given him by the Father can be lost. And none will be cast out. He has mercy on us, on whom he wills. And to Christ be the glory forever. Amen. We are done. <laughs> we are done. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. We will talk. We will chat. Love you all in Christ. <laughs>